Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our WNBA Power Rankings 4.0. So with WNBA play returning this Sunday, August 15th, and also with the Commissioner's Cup game tomorrow between Connecticut and Seattle, Jalen and I are back at it again with another edition of our WNBA Power Rankings. So Jalen, start us off with your top 12 teams. Yes, sir, bro. So um, I'm going to start from the bottom and work our way up to the top of this power ranking. So I'm going to start at number 12, which will be the Indiana Fever. At number 11, I have the Atlanta Dream. At number 10, I have the LA Sparks. At number nine, taking a really, really large dip compared to the beginning of the season, I have the New York Liberty. At number eight, I have the Washington Mystics. At number seven, I have the Phoenix Mercury. At number six, I've got the Dallas Wings. At number five, I've got the Minnesota Lynx. Number four, I've got the Chicago Sky. Number three, Connecticut Sun. Number two, the defending champion, Seattle Storm. And the team that met them in the finals, the Las Vegas Aces. So for my power ranking, at number 12, I have the Indiana Fever. Number 11, I have the Los Angeles Sparks. Number 10, I have the Atlanta Dream. Number nine, I have the Washington Mystics. Number eight, I have the New York Liberty. Number seven, I have the Phoenix Mercury. Number six, I have the Dallas Wings. Number five, I have the Chicago Sky. Number four, I have the Minnesota Lynx. Number three, I have the Connecticut Sun. Number two, I have the Seattle Storm. And number one, the Las Vegas Aces. All right. So we're getting pretty, we're getting pretty down to a science when it comes to this top five. It's starting to really shape itself, which is something that we kind of expected after the way the year started off. If you remember, Ryan, when we first kicked off the year um, in terms of the season, one of our biggest concerns was the combination of some of the the early injuries that took place, as well as some of the players missing due to international play. One of the teams that took one of the bigger hits due to international play was the, the Washington Mystics, right? Of course, you talk about Elena Deladon, who missed their due to injury, but Emma Mieseman has been out due to inter- international play. And uh, Maisha Hines-Allen also is another person who missed a decent amount of time, at least the first, you know, week or two of the season due to international play as well. And this kind of kind of this kind of plays out throughout the rest of the WNBA. You factor in the Dallas Wings as well, who were missing out on two players, Satu Sabali being one of them due to either Olympic play, uh, tourney play or some kind of overseas action. So now that we've meet now that we've reached the midway point and players are starting to return back from overseas play. Um, players are starting to get healthier. We're starting to see a lot of other players that are starting to be marked up on the depth sheet as healthy coming into the second half of the season. It's going to be really interesting. By the time we get to 6 and 7.0, like we've only got about two real months left of the season before the playoffs come up, and we'll probably have at least maybe two, maybe three power rankings um, between now and then. I would say at least two. We'll at least hit a 6.0 by that point. So it'll be interesting to see how things shape up. Um, with that being the case, of course, the way we've done things the last couple of times with these power rankings is we start our way from the bottom of the list and work our way up to the top. So we're going to start with the Indiana Fever. 
Um, the tricky part about Indiana is is Ryan, and I say this every single time, but I do have to preface my comments by you know starting out this way. Indiana is tricky because when we have the conversations about Indiana, it's hard to talk about what they need to do without mentioning mentioning Kaiser Gajasic at the top of that list, right? Obviously, that's one of the bigger things that comes to mind. Um, and of course, when you talk about this team, the main thing that you can focus on because they have nothing to lose is this team receive, uh, giving playing time to some of the younger, some of the younger guards, some of the younger players, and really get an understanding of what they have in their building. Because right now, there's no bona fide superstar. You could say that Kelsey Mitchell is the leader of this team, but I would say that's only in the form of the stat sheet. So, how do you feel about Indiana in terms of their current situation? Um, how do you feel about some of the players that they have on their roster? And what do you think is one of the most important things they need to address in the second half of the season? Well, I think there are a couple of interesting things with this Indiana team. Number one, they ended the first half of the WNBA season on a three-game winning streak. And I think it's very interesting that they ended on a three-game winning streak because they can prove in this second half of the season if they are really a playoff caliber team. Now, keep in mind, this is a fever team that is going through a rebuild right now. And this is also a team that is one of the worst offensive and defensive teams in the league. They have the second worst offensive rating and the second worst defensive rating in the league. So I think going forward, it's not about making the playoffs, but it's about improving on both sides of the floor. And one of the players that's really been improving on both sides of the floor, I feel like we have to mention her name, Tara McCowan. She's averaging 11.3 points a game, 9.1 rebounds a game, 51.8% shooting from the field. And she ended up having 21 and 14 in their last game against the Atlanta Dream. And she was one of the biggest reasons why the Indiana Fever were out rebounding the Atlanta Dream and just dominating them in the front court. So I think that also during this, also during this winning streak, she was averaging 16.3 points a game, 11.7 rebounds a game, and three blocks per game. So I think if we have to point out a star on the Indiana Fever, it would have to be Tierra McCowan. Now, I also think going forward, they do have to play younger players now. I mentioned in one of our WNBA episodes that it came as a surprise to not only Jalen, but also to myself that they released Lauren Cox, who was their third overall pick back in the 2020 draft, because she could have really helped with this, she could have been at the forefront of this Indiana rebuild right next to Kaiser Godrasik. I hope that they play some of these younger players more. And I, I hope that Kaiser Godrasik gets, gets the time to shine because we know what she did at West Virginia in college. Now she just needs to prove what she can do in the WNBA. Yeah, man, I think there's a lot of points I want to build off. The main one is the McCallum point that you made. I think that's a great point when you talk about what she's done for this team. 1.5 blocks as well over the course of the first half of the season. Um, I think she's a big cog of the system in which you, you look at their two-point field goal percentage and their third in the entire WNBA in terms of two-point percentage. I think that just pays to the fact that you know, Kelsey Mitchell is a driver. Tierra McCowan, again, like you mentioned before, is improving as, an, as a down-low presence in the front court. Um, I think the big thing is they're struggling in a lot of the major categories, which is the one thing that's really hurting them. You talk about, you know, points per game. They're second to last in the league. Assist, a big one that I think is pretty um, detrimental to them, is the fact that they're second to last in assists. And the crazy part is 
the um the two Mitchells, Kelsey Mitchell and Tiffany Mitchell combined average just barely over four assists a game. Like that's your backcourt. That's bare and you're talking about two um two score heavy guards. I mean, granted it's not in crazy abundance. Mitchell with uh Kelsey Mitchell with 16.1, Tiffany Mitchell with 11 11.6 points per game. So it's not like a crazy offensive output where it says, oh, they have this crazy um usage they're putting up points in bunches and that's why they're not facilitating. No, these are two players that are scoring relatively well, but not in this outrageous count that makes it where they need to, dare I say, come off as ball hogs to a certain extent. Like I said, they're both averaging either just under or just barely over two assists per game apiece which is a tough thing to get from your starting backcourt in terms of getting others involved. And then, of course, the other thing is 12th and three-point percentage. I thought this was so intriguing out of the fact that Kaiser Godzic drafted fourth overall, was one of the best shooters, if not the best shooter in the draft. And I thought that was why where her upside came from. Like, I assumed that the reaching, especially when you talk about, like, Dana Evans was on the board, for example. Um, I, I think you can go down the list of, a handful of players that fell that we were really interested about. I mean, even Natasha Mack, right, from a defensive standpoint, would have been really interesting next to Tierra McCowan, too. And she ended up falling, real, like, I think, significantly into the second round, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm assuming that Indiana reached on Kaiser Godzic because of her three-point shooting ability. You also talk about Chelsea Perry, who they picked up, who also was a pretty decent three-point shooter in college, if not a high-level a high level three-point shooter. So you have two players in the backcourt who both service you well in the three-point area. They certainly are better shooters in theory than both of the Mitchells. Kelsey Mitchell shoots 30.4% from the three-point um, three line. Tiffany Mitchell shoots 25% from three-point. I, I would like to believe that if you grab two three-point shooters in the draft or via undrafted free agency by picking up Kaiser Godrick and Chelsea Perry, you would think, you would think in theory that you would give these players a little bit more time because they easily address one of your biggest offensive holes. So I think it's tricky with Indiana because of the fact that I feel like they have all of this potential in front of them. And it's just about the idea of actually enacting on some of these little nuggets of information that kind of seem to stand out to us, but don't seem to be as prevalent to the coaching staff and up up top. Because I, I definitely think some of these things actually can be addressed really easily within their own roster without having to do anything crazy before the trade deadline. And I think what you touched on with the potential, it makes a lot of sense considering that, like like I mentioned earlier, this team's on a three-game winning streak. And I think that as a rebuilding team with not a lot of expectations, this is an Indiana fever team that could end up slipping into the playoffs given what they've already done so far in the season. I think if Tierra McCowan keeps playing the way that she's been playing, I think if Kelsey Mitchell continues to provide that scoring for the Indiana fever, I think that this team has a chance to make it into the playoffs. I think now it's just about being able to keep up the consistency of Tierra McCowan's play, but also trying to trying to give the rookies a chance. Kaiser Godrick needs to get more playing time. I think Chelsea Perry needs to get more playing time. Given what those two players have done in college should indicate that 
they have the chance to have their play translate over to the to the WNBA. And I mean, another thing I want to say with Chelsea Perry, I pointed her out as one of my unsung hoopers from um, well, the last time we did an unsung hooper episode. She is as talented as the stats tell you at UT Martin. So I think you have to give Kaiser and Chelsea Perry a chance to at least show you what they have. Yeah, I think it would take one hell of a run for them to be able to still make the playoffs from their position. I just think the top eight is so strong. And I, I think you could argue that the top 10 is, um, or at least the top nine is relatively strong as well. So I think it would be really hard unless all of those teams kind of kill each other on the way up for Indiana to make a really strong play. But I think they could at least have a really positive second half of the season to help lead into building upon something going into next year. Kind of like how we were talking about, you mentioned at the top of the episode, how they went on a three-game winning streak going into this break. I think that that's something that should be really positive on their radar because we have to remember one of those teams they took out was Connecticut. And I think that's a really good win on their on their docket so far. They don't have many, but that is a really good win to go into the break with, especially knowing that this is a Connecticut Sun team that will be playing for the Commissioner's Cup. Uh, of course, we're not going to talk too deep about that because this will probably come out after the Commissioner's Cup um, is played. But still, this is a high, this is a highly talented team in a couple of spots. And it's just going to be all about really diving in to some of the potential that they have sitting down on the end of the bench. Um, Brian, we're going to move to the Atlanta dream. And um, I'm curious as to why you put them over the uh, LA Sparks. Let's just kind of break down the Atlanta dream a little bit. 16, uh, uh, they played 19 games so far, six and 13 through that stretch fifth in the Eastern Conference, 10th overall in the standings, which is about where you had. You had them at 10th um, in your power rankings. But, I mean, they started four and two. We were talking pretty good about them at the beginning of the year. They have only won two games since then. So as a team that has been pretty down bad, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, L.A. has not been playing relatively well either, but at least you could point that to Amanda Zowie B was a new acquisition. The Aguma K sisters have only played about six games apiece due to injury. At least you can point to a couple of things in regards to why L.A. is struggling a bit. But why is it that you still have faith in Atlanta, at least in comparison to the Sparks? I have faith in Atlanta simply because they have one of the top offenses in the league. I think if we look statistically at Los Angeles's offense, Los Angeles is scoring 73.2 points per game, which is worse in the league. They're also battling a lot of injuries, which is causing their offense, which is causing their offensive struggles. The Oklahoma sisters being, being in and out of the lineup that has to hurt Christy Tolliver being in and out of the lineup. I think that has to hurt as well. So I feel like that, the only way that this team can get better on the offensive side is if all their players come back. I think if I had to pick a team that was more likely to make the playoffs this year, it would be the Atlanta dream. Obviously the Kennedy Carter saga is continuing to progress here as we go back to WNBA play on Sunday, August 15th, but they do have some positives coming back. I mentioned in our last WNBA episode Tiffany Hayes, who was out with an injury, she's coming back, and she leads Atlanta with 17.6 points per game. Now you get Candace Dupree as well, 
who provides you that forward depth. She's an all-star caliber player. I think Atlanta has more potential to make the playoffs than Los Angeles does. And that's why I have them at 10 and Los Angeles at 11. I think that's fair to point out because now that I'm really sitting here thinking about it, Atlanta had its own injury issues as well. You talk about Hayes, who Hayes and Kennedy Carter have only played 11 games apiece. Remember, we said at the top of this, there's been 19 games played by the Dream, and two of their top three leading scorers have missed eight of those games. That's easily eight games that could be swayed in their favor, potentially moving them up the standings in both the East and overall in the playoff picture, just by having those eight games with a full trifecta of Courtney Williams, Tiffany Hayes, and Kennedy Carter. Um, I think especially with Carter still being suspended indefinitely, at least as of our knowledge right now, nothing has been lifted. I think the Candace Dupree signing is one of those that definitely will be kind of interesting to see how she factors into this. I think it gives them um, some much needed forward presence down low. I think that'll be something that'll be really interesting. I think it gives them another facilitator as well out of the low post, which should be really helpful for them too. This is a team that plays really up-tempo and likes to run. They're one of the top uh, teams in pace of play this season as well. So I think that's one of the biggest things. I just think over anything, there's two things in particular that stands out to me is that they're one of the worst defenses in the league. I think they're literally the worst defense in the league per rankings. And the other thing is that they just lack inside depth. That's where I think the the, the whole Dupree thing will come to light because Elizabeth, Elizabeth Williams and Monique Billings they really have to step up and be a little bit more productive down low as a part of that front court. And I've been saying this for a while, Ryan. I think this is pretty well documented throughout us talking about the WNBA. But I genuinely think that Monique Billings should get more burn. Um, I've always been intrigued about her getting a little bit more playing time as a player who's been coming off the bench strong for them throughout this season. Um, for, for at least most of the time frame, I think it would be really interesting to give her more, her more burn. And I'm not even just saying in the form of starts, cause I feel like that's too simplistic. I mean, more minutes on the floor. Um, I think that, I think the Candace signing will obviously maybe mess with that a little bit, but I think overall, if they can just get more production from their front court, as well as get these players healthy, talking about Tiffany Hayes. And um, if Kennedy Carter does return, I think that would be huge, too. I mean, you're missing out on 14 points per game, uh, 45% shooting from the line. Like, I mean, shooting from um, shooting from the field. So, I mean, that's – I'm not going to say that's a significant hit, but for an up-tempo offense like this one, you definitely want to get as many guards on the court as you can. So, I mean, if they can get more front court play and just be healthy, I think Atlanta is an interesting squad. Um Going as far as making the playoffs, again, like I mentioned before, and this, but these bottom four, really tricky when you start talk, talking about making the playoffs. But like you said, if you had to do weighing the dream versus the sparks in terms of their chances of making the playoffs, I think you have a really fair point to make there talking about Atlanta's case. Um, if we move over to Los Angeles, same exact record, right? sixth in the Western Conference instead, right behind Atlanta at 11th overall in the standings. This is a team that's been missing the Agumake sisters. I think they both have only played uh, about five or six games apiece. They've missed the majority of the season pretty much dealing with knee issues for both of them. 
Erica Wheeler has played relatively well in their absence. Ted Cooper is another player who's played relatively well in their absence. Amanda Zowie B is one of those big offseason signings that we were extremely hype about um, personally going into the year. Um, how do you feel about the Sparks situation going into the second half? I am under the assumption, based on a lot of the Olympics play debacle situations taking place prior to the Olympics starting, that I'm assuming the Agumake sisters are healthy enough to come back and play in the second half of the season, which should be a bright, like a bright spot for them. But how do you feel about them going into the second half of the season? Obviously you have them 11th, but in terms of, you know, what they need to do to um, put themselves back in the mix. Like I mentioned earlier, I think the only way they can get themselves back in the mix is if everyone stays healthy. And this team has what the Atlanta dream does not have a lot of, which is, strong defensive play. And when you think about the fact that they average 4.5 blocks a game, which is third in the league and eight and a half steals per game, which is second in the league. This is a team that has that defensive potential that if they can be healthy, the offense will start coming together, especially considering that Nanike and Chine Okwamike are two of their best offensive players. And then of course, you have Erica Wheeler, who has stepped up big time. Amanda Zowie B, who I thought was a great signing for them to sure up their depth in the front court. Brittany Sykes has been playing pretty good as well. Tia Cooper has been stepping up in the absence of the Ogwamike sisters. So there is that potential. And I and, I, and my Atlanta dream take, having Atlanta over Los Angeles in terms of making the playoffs, I could easily be wrong about that, depending on what happens offensively with the Los Angeles Sparks. Like I mentioned, they are last in the league in points per game. And they have one of the worst offenses in the league, whereas Atlanta has one of the worst defenses in the league. So I feel like either one of those teams could easily make a late season push to end up making the playoffs. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting how these two teams contrast. They're so close in the standings and their strengths and weaknesses are polar opposites of each other. Because you talk about Los Angeles, even even though they're missing – their two best players by far on the roster for most of the year, they were a top five scoring defense throughout the top um the the first half of this season, which is a really interesting thing. But like you said, the defense, I mean, the defense is carrying them considering the offense is struggling so much. Um, Cause you talk about the fact you mentioned beforehand dead last in points per game, 73.2 points on a nightly basis. That's a tough one when you talk about this league because teams are starting to get there in the, you know, the, the high 80s and 90s for this league so far. And being, you know, near 70 points per game is just too tough. Now, granted, when you miss the Agumake sisters, you're missing, let's say, about 25, 26 points per game combined. That is a really tough hit. That's not to say that now, you know, add those two back and now this this team is averaging 90 points per game. I don't see it being that significant of an impact, but I think that it does give them an offensive um, influx that will give them the chance to improve on that side of the ball. And I think that with their defense already being so high level, I think they have the chance to really kind of right the ship. Again, when you talk about the bottom half of this, uh, the bottom half of this power ranking, Projecting playoffs is tricky, but one thing I will say, and I really want your um, your opinion on this, is 
that one of the biggest things I think needs to turn around for this season more than anything when you talk about the Sparks is I think that Amanda Zowie B needs to turn herself into a top seven center in the in the WNBA. Um, right now, she's averaging 11.4 points per game, 5.9 rebounds a game, and 1.5 blocks on 43.9 shooting from the field. Like those are all really solid, you know, stats across the board. But in order for this team to take a crazy enough jump to jump out of being 11th in the standings to being somewhere around the 8-9 range with a chance in the last week or two to really make a play for the playoffs, she's going to really have to step up as a top seven center. And I don't think a top seven center has to be a player that averages 20 points per game, 10 rebounds. It doesn't have to be that because there's not too many centers in the WNBA doing that. But if she can bounce her way, bounce her statistics up just a tick, if we get to 15 points per game, seven rebounds a night, still about a block and a half, but we're on a little bit better uh, shooting percentage, somewhere around 45 to 47% from the floor. Like now we're talking about a dominant inside presence with two forwards in the Agumake sisters, Erica Wheeler, who's been improving as a three-point shooter, Taya Cooper, who's another ball handler for them. Uh, Brittany Sykes, like you mentioned before, like now we're fleshing it out into a team that has some legit like star power across the board and they're a team that's going to be a tough out on a nightly basis because they're already a scary defense with a strong offensive presence in the middle and getting the Agumake sisters back healthy on the perimeter now you're creating a one-two punch or I guess a trifecta in this case that really kind of puts them in a different bracket in the talent in the talent range across the WNBA. But how do you feel about Amanda Zion B moving forward? And like, what do you expect from her on a, on a realistic front in terms of what she could do um, to close out this season? I expect her to, to do the little things, because I think when you think about centers in the WNBA, you want to see a center attack the glass. You want to see them attack the low post, also defend the low post. You want them to be your defensive anchor. I think Amanda Zowie B has that potential. Now it's just about if she can progress in terms of the statistics. She's having a pretty good season so far. And it's only, I believe it's only her third year in the WNBA. So I think having that potential for her to be a 15 and seven player, I think it's, it's a, it's a bit realistic. I think that if she's able to become a 15 and seven player, with that trifecta, like you mentioned, I think that Los Angeles would pre- would have a pretty stellar defense. They have a pretty good defense right now, but it can only get better with the progression of Amanda Zowie B. And talking about Zowie B and top seven centers, uh, we're going to move on to our next team where um, we both disagreed on this a bit, but not by much. Uh, we're going to move on to the uh, Washington Mystics. Um, again, like I said, talking about top seven centers, you could argue that Tina Charles is the best center in the WNBA right now. You can make a legit argument. I think John Cole Jones might have something to say about that. Um, there's definitely a certain debate between those two that we could easily hash out um, on a, a future episode. I know that we definitely plan on making our predictions, our final predictions for some of the WNBA awards before the season is over. That is going to be a really interesting conversation that we have because Connecticut is atop the standings with John Quill Jones playing out of, their, out of her mind. But the Washington Mystics, eight and 10 record, fourth in the Eastern Conference, just barely in the playoff mix at the eighth spot in the overall standings. And it has anything and everything to do with Tina Charles written all over it like no way 
know-how are they in this mix without her playing out of her mind. She's averaging 26.3 points per game, 10 rebounds, 2.2 assists, nearly 40% from the three-point line, 82% from the free throw line, nearly a steal, uh, nearly a steal and a half a game and nearly a block a game. Like she is playing otherworldly. You have to factor in that Ariel Atkins has missed some time. She played well when she was on the floor, 16.8 points per game, shooting nearly 40% from three herself. Um, and they got Maisha Hines-Allen, who I mentioned at the top of the episode, they got her back after a couple of weeks of being out. She's averaging about 14 points to seven rebounds. So across the board, their top three is definitely, definitely pretty lethal right now when they're all on the floor healthy. The trick has been, you know, Hines Allen has missed time. Uh, Ariel Atkins has missed time. Tina Charles can only carry but so much. We talked about Elena Deladon and Misa missing time. Um, you were a smidge lower on this team than I was. Um, the, and I'm perfectly fine with that because I think that this could go one of two ways, depending on how Elena Deladon does or doesn't return. Uh, and of course, the effect that Emma Mieseman might have when she comes and returns, I think sometime in late August. So how do you feel about this Washington Mystics team? Uh, what are some of your takeaways from the beginning of the season, the first half of the season? And what do you, what are some of your expectations going into the second half? I think if Washington did not have Tina Charles, they would not be in the position where they are right now. You can credit the fact that Tina Charles has kept this team in games and she's arguably the best center in the WNBA right now. You read off the statistics, 26 points a game and 10 rebounds. I think that's about as, as dominant of a center that you could ask for, for the Washington Mystics. And, you know, of course that this team has been battling injuries. A lot of teams have been battling injuries this year, but I think they've been hit the hardest. If you think about losing Maisha Hines, Allen, Natasha cloud, Erica McCall, not having Elena Deladon. Those have all been issues this season that Washington has overcome. If you think about playing games with only seven players and then pulling off upsets in their most recent game against the Chicago Sky that ended a four-game losing streak, it was Tina Charles who put the team on her back to help the Mystics essentially beat the Chicago Sky, who are a top five team in the WNBA. I think now they have shown us what they can do without some of their top talent. Now that their top talent is starting to come back, I think Washington could be a very dangerous team. We mentioned Elena Deladon is possibly coming back. Emma Mieseman will be coming back once she's finished international play. And then, of course, you have injuries like Maisha Hines-Dallin and Natasha Cloud who are going to be coming back to help this team give them scoring coming off the bench. I think Washington's in a pretty good position right now where they can make a late season push and become possibly a top five team. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing, of course, like we mentioned at the top is that Tina Charles is playing at an MVP caliber level. And that's been one of the things that has kept them in this playoff hunt. My fear is that Elena Deladon will not come back and that Emma Miesman Emma will come too late in this last two months of season push that I'm, I'm not entirely certain about that. We'll have to see how things go within the first week or two of this, uh, this season restart, but I'm assuming, or my belief is that she's going to show up too late and not be able to have the kind of impact 
that's going to be able to put this team over the top. And I'm scared. I'm I'm working on pre I'm working on uh post uh, All Star break predictions and stuff for my blog. And one of my biggest fears is that I think they're gonna just barely fall short of making the playoffs this season, just out of the mere fact that I'm not entirely certain how long Tina Charles can hold this team up by herself. Now, if Elena Deladon comes back, even if she doesn't come back, you know, as 100% of herself, if she even comes back as 70 or 80% of herself, that facilitating, um, that's the, the facilitating she provides, the big time rebounding she provides, just the mere presence of her is going to create open looks for other players on the floor. And I think that's the real impact that they need more than anything in terms of having a player on the floor that can free up Tina Charles. Plus, hey, man, you can't sleep on the fact of pairing two former MVPs together in the front court either. That's something that's got danger written all over for the rest of the league. So I think that this team. I don't want to say that it rides on Elena Deladon coming back because I think this team could make the playoffs without her. But I think for this team to be a real threat, for this team to be a real threat, it's going to ride more on Deladon arriving than it is Misaman. I think that's an obvious statement, but I think it hits a lot harder when you think about the fact that we still are not entirely certain about what Deladon's um, timetable is. So now we have to move on to New York. Again, we had these flip-flops. You had New York at eight, just barely making the playoffs. I had New York at nine, just barely missing the playoffs. Based on this power ranking, of course, this is going to continue to change. But right now, that's how, how we have it set up. Sabrina has had a, um interesting season, to say the, late, say the least. I would say the first couple of games of the season really kind of put her back on the map after coming back from that season-ending injury last season. She's averaging just under 10 points a game, nearly six rebounds a game, six assists on the dot. But the shooting, the shooting is horrific, unfortunately. 35% from the floor. The 37% from three is good, and that's a good sign moving forward. But the, the efficiency isn't there. Now, Benajah Laney has been able to steer things, you know, in the right direction, 19 points per game, 4.1 rebounds, five assists, shoot nearly 50% from the floor, just barely over um, 31% from the three-point land. And I think this team, man, this team, the boom-bust potential on them is so weird because you know that this ship is, dro- is driven or I guess it's, I'm trying to think of the right way to like phrase this. So the way I'm going to put it is the buck stops with Sabrina. That's like the best way I can phrase it. The, the buck stops with Sabrina. When Sabrina plays well, this team tends to be either in the winner's column or they just barely lost. But Laney has been a consistent 20-point-per-game scorer. She did take a little bit of a dip throughout the midway point of the first half of the season. But for the most part, when they scored, when she scored 20 or more, they were in those games. We talked about this on a, on a multitude of power ranking episodes, that when Laney plays well, they're in games. I think when Sabrina plays well, they win games. It's, there's, there's the difference. So – I think that's one of the biggest things. And I think they have the 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 help of the fact that they're one of the best three-point shooting teams in the league. I think they're second um, in terms of attempts in the league, and they're fourth in terms of shooting percentage um, from three-point from the three-point line, which are really good things to build upon when you talk about their offense. The one thing, Ryan, and I want you to harp on this a little bit more than than 
um, than anything, because I think this might be the most important point. Of course, I know you might have other things to factor in, like Natasha Howard missing a lot of time due to injury. But one of the biggest things that I feel like is an issue and I want to get your thoughts on is, Ryan, this is like one of the worst, easily, easily the worst turnover prone team in the WNBA right now. I mean, it is horrific where they rank in terms of turnovers. I mean, they are pretty much somewhere in the bottom three in terms of turnovers per game. Ryan, what is going on with New York? Because I think they have all the pieces. I think if Natasha Howard comes back, they're going to be good to go. But if they're turning the ball over, they're selling these games. I think the best way that you put it was, but Najalini keeps them in games and Sabrina will help them win games. I think that is going to be the story for the second half of the season because we know Sabrina is a talented player, but she has to be healthy for these games, especially if New York wants to finish as a top five team in the WNBA. It's not going to get any better considering that six of their 11 games are against the top four teams in the league. And I feel like the turnover rate is going to be the thing that ends up hurting them possibly. I feel like New York has this potential that they can reach the championship and they can win the championship with the talent that they have, but they have different issues. Natasha Howard, like you mentioned earlier, I think that's a huge loss considering that we really haven't seen this duo of Sabrina and Natasha Howard as much. And Natasha said before the season that they have the potential to be the Kobe and Shaq of the WNBA. We really haven't seen that, even though I would love to see if this works out. But we haven't seen it. And I think offensively, like you mentioned earlier, that's been a struggle. The Liberty as a team averaged 79.2 points per game, which is 10th in the league. And in their past two losses, they scored 69 and 54 points. In the two wins before that, they scored 82 and 99 points. So I think offensively, they have to find some consistency. I think they have to be able to keep the ball in their hands instead of turning over the ball. They also have to get players healthy. I think Natasha Howard missing a good portion of the season has hurt this team, even though I think Kylie Shook has provided a pretty good role at center in her absence. Sabrina being healthy, I think, is going to be the big thing going forward, considering that she will help this team win games because of her talent. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of things to take away from what you said. One of the biggest things being that Natasha Howard provides this interior presence for them. That'll be really huge for them in terms of creating offense, especially with the fact that they are a three-point shooting team. Like I said beforehand, they are they are not afraid to shoot it. Second in attempts in the WNBA, they're not afraid to shoot it. And if you can have a player like Natasha Howard require um, at least a single body on her down low, if not two, that creates one-on-one matchups for Sabrina to attack. That creates one-on-one matchups for Laney to attack. Sammy Whitcomb has also been a really good player for them as well so far this season. 12.1 points per game, 5.8 rebounds per game. And she's shooting nearly 44% from three-point line. So they are not they are not afraid to shoot it from back there. They're a really good three-point shooting team um, based on the percentages. 
I think that presence is going to be huge. I think the turnovers need to be cut down in order for them to be able to, uh, to, to really be in these games. And they have high IQ players. So I don't think that's going to be difficult for them to do. I think they need to get out of their own heads. And of course, the biggest thing that we haven't even touched on too is Michaela Onyewer is obviously the, the runaway rookie of the year so far this season uh, with the way that she's been playing. I think that in the second half of the season, you got to take the training wheels off and you got to let her play at a really high level. I think one of the teams that, uh, especially from a talent standpoint, one of the teams New York can learn from is the Chicago Sky. The Chicago Sky are playing really crazy between their top five players. We'll talk about them a little bit later when we get to the top five. But the Chicago Sky have one bona fide superstar and Candace Parker. I think that you the same could be saying the same could be said about Sabrina Iescu for the New York Liberty. And then you fill things out when you look at the rest of the Chicago Sky starting five and down the lane for them. Like I said, I'm not gonna go into them too deep right now because we'll obviously talk about them in a little bit. But I think that from a talent standpoint, New York is in a very similar place, especially when healthy. And I think if they can spread the wealth a little bit, this team can get right back in the mix of the way, you know, we had, we were harping on them being a top four team, the first two, two power rankings. I think they can get back to that point if they get healthy and start sharing the ball and play with one another, the way we know they're capable of doing. Think about this, Jalen. Think about where Seattle's at right now without Natasha Howard. They are not as strong of a defensive team, which we'll get into that later, but they're not as strong of a defensive team without Natasha Howard at the helm. New York with Natasha Howard at the helm can become one of the strongest defensive teams in the WNBA. And having Natasha Howard as that defensive anchor also has as that above the rim threat. Imagine the things that can happen for this New York team. They could boost themselves back into the top four if all their players become healthy again. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think that Tasha Howard is the missing link for this team. I think that she opens up so much on the floor for them, and especially being a really good three-point shooting team, like I mentioned beforehand. With those open, with those opened up looks, with the fact that there'll be more one-on-one matchups created because she's always going to require a body because she's one of the better offensive rebounders in the league. I think that all of those things factor into this team significantly improving in the second half of the season if everybody is right. I really think that, Ryan, I genuinely believe that they could play themselves back into being a top five caliber team. I'm scared that they're barely going to squeak in the playoffs. I really have my, my doubts, especially depending on how Sabrina looks in the second half, because remember, there was a lot of single digit scoring outputs by Sabrina throughout this first half of the season as well. That cannot continue if this team looks to if this team is looking to have any chance at making the playoffs, let alone really make some noise in the playoffs on top of that. So New York is one of those storylines where I, I think similar to where you talk about the Sparks, we talk about them a little bit earlier. I think a lot of these teams in the in the bottom portion of our of our bracket, there's something they have already on the roster that can if they flip that switch, they can easily turn things around. You talk about Indiana. I think they just need to get more burn from their young players. I think Perry and Gaudrasek could give them the kind of internal boost that they need 
in the backcourt because they need to improve that three-point shooting that can instantly turn things around for them to a certain extent. With the Sparks, you get the Agumake sisters back. I think they're already a pretty solid team. At least that shows on the defensive end. If they can get the scoring output from those two that they were getting earlier on in the season, things turn around. You talk about Atlanta. Atlanta has things there, right? And I think picking up Candace was huge in terms of adding to their front court because that was one of the biggest things that was hurting them. And then the Mystics, we've already talked about who they've been missing for most of the year. Atlanta Deladon is an MVP caliber player. Yes, you substitute that with Tina Charles, but if you have both of them on the floor, Ryan, I think we would have been saying that the Washington Mystics were somewhere in this top four, and we would have been having a really hard time putting either the Lynx, the Sky, or the Connecticut Sun in that top five if the Washington Mystics had both of their MV, their former MVPs on this squad right now, not to mention Emma Mieseman, who's a knockdown three-point shooter and was really big for them in that, that, um, that finals run a couple of years ago. The Liberty, right, right back in the mix, talking about, talking about what they could potentially add to their, add to their, to their play to improve. The name is simple. Natasha Howard, you add her to the mix, and I think she opens up a lot. I think she'll also help slow them down, which they probably kind of need to help with taking care of the ball. So I think that's huge. I think that's huge too. Yes, I know saying that them slowing down might sound like a negative thing, but I think when you're a high turnover-prone team, that slowing the rock down and playing a more half-court oriented offense might actually really improve the overall result. So now we're in the top seven, and this is where things got kind of interesting. But one thing we did easily start to agree on was this six and seven pairing. So we're going to start with the Phoenix Mercury. This is a team that has been pretty solid for most of the year, right? I think we can agree that they've been pretty okay um, so far this season. Nine and ten record, fourth in the Western Conference, seventh overall in the standings. We have to remember that Diana Taurasi, super legend, shout out to how she played in the uh, the Olympics. She was definitely a big cog to that team, her and Sue Bird. But she did have a minor, she did have a minor um, injury that set her back for a little bit. But the combination of um, Taurasi, Brittany Griner, and Scarlett Diggins Smith, man, this is a trifecta that not many teams, if any teams, have in the league. I think the Connecticut Sun. In the laws, I think that I think the, I think the top four teams, um, maybe even the top five teams in the league, are the only ones that can say they remotely have two superstars. And I think that only maybe three of them can say that they have a bona fide trifecta. So, with that being the case, how do we feel about the Phoenix Mercury? Because we have to remember that Tarasi is on. I don't want to say the back nine. I don't want to go questioning, you know, how long she's going to be around. A lot of people did that with Chris Paul and they ate their words. So I'm not going to go jumping ship on Tarasi just yet. But the amount of opportunities she's having at making a making a championship run are starting to slowly slip away. So how do we feel about the Phoenix Mercury in terms of their pegging order? I know we both have them at seven, but going into the second half of the season, what do you think is the biggest thing they need to touch on in order to really solidify themselves? as a championship caliber team. They have a very talented big three. And I think when you look at this big three of Skylar Diggins-Smith, Diana Taurasi, and Brittany Griner, we're talking about three potential top 15 players in the WNBA. And when you have one of the greatest of all time in Diana Taurasi, one of the greatest centers in the WNBA in Brittany Griner, 
and a top scorer and ball handler in Skylar Diggins Smith, I feel like any team could use all three of them. The issues begin with the rest of the roster because I think you need production from the rest of the roster. Kia Nurse is a player that has stepped up for them in some games and given them that scoring production. She had 28 points and hit seven threes against Seattle. So I think that's exactly what you want from one of your players in your supporting cast. But I think you need to get more production from your supporting cast. This is a team that also has the fourth worst defensive rating. They're seventh in the league in terms of offensive rating. And they're also three and three in the la- in the last couple games heading into that Olympic break. So they really need a supported cast outside of their big three to step up in order for the scene to win games. I agree with that. I think the biggest thing is they have stepped up defensively. I think one of the biggest things that step out uh, stands out to me is that they are one of the best teams from an aggressive standpoint. They're one of the best teams in the league in terms of drawing fouls. They're second in free throw attempts. Um, with 21.4 attempts per game, but they're also the best at limiting how much they foul. They're also second in opponents free throw attempts per game with 15.8 attempts per game for the, for the other side. So I think that's a huge thing for them because they're always able to play at their play, play at their pace. They're always able to be aggressive. This is a team that is a lot slower paced. I think that makes a lot of sense with the fact that there's a lot of veteran presence on this team Um, Not a ton of like athleticism across the board. It's a lot of cerebral minds on this team. And so I think that that works well for them in terms of them being a a team that thrives in the half court. But they're also really good on the defensive end in terms of not giving up easy baskets. So they're going to go get theirs, but they're not going to allow you to get yours on the other end, at least not the easy way at the line. So I think that's one of the big things that stands out. But I agree with your main point, Ryan, which talking about their depth. Because one of the biggest things I wrote this out as a point for the episode was I said the Mercury have a veteran experience, have a veteran experience as well as a talented top three to carry them. But I do worry that they may not be deep enough as a team to compete with teams like Las Vegas, Seattle and even Chicago. And I think, yes, you're, you're talking about two you're talking about two, three teams that are in the top five for our power rankings, right? I think you could argue that from a from a roster standpoint, the Connecticut Sun, they sent three All-Stars um, to All-Star Weekend. The Chicago Sky have arguably one of the best shooters in the WNBA in Quig- and Allie Quigley. Um, and then you talk about, like I mentioned beforehand, they I think they arguably have five or six players that really make noise. I mean, Diamond DeShields is a really solid player. Um, I, I, like I said, we'll go into them a little bit more uh, when we get to them. But like the top five in comparison are just significantly better front to back than the Phoenix Mercury are. And that's what my worry is. Now, the bright side is that I do believe in a one game elimination circumstance. I think Phoenix can mess with anybody. I think this is where getting out of the first round, something I don't believe they did last season. I think they always have a shot in those kind of elimination situations. And if they do sneak into the playoffs as a seventh seed, I give them a legitimate chance to be able to move past the first round. But I think once we start talking about being in a series with some of these top teams, even the Minnesota Lynx for, for um, this ranking, I think falls into the category of I'm not sure if Phoenix can fool with them. You know what I mean? I don't necessarily have the same kind of confidence I did earlier in the year in Phoenix. I think those one game playoffs 
that's where a player outside of the big three has to step up. I think that's a one-game playoff where someone like Kia Nurse or Shea Petty has to take over. I think that has to happen in order for Phoenix to go far. I think in a series, I do have those same those same concerns about the depth in terms of competing with teams like Las Vegas, Seattle, and Chicago. This team has to be given a chance. I think that's fair. I mean, I think the biggest thing is Scarlett Diggins-Smith is now going to have a lot more on her plate as a ball handler, even with Diana Taurasi coming back, because, I mean, Diana, she's putting up 15.6 points per game, um, along with four assists per game, which is good within her sample size, but 36% from the floor, 32.6% from three-point line. Everything can't be written, you know, within statistics. You can't you know, truly define what her impact on the floor is based off shooting percentage, points, rebounds, assists, right? She has obviously a lot more impact on the floor as a cerebral mind, as a someone who typically sets up a lot of the things for this team to be successful. So I'm not, you know, taking any digs or anything by that, by that stretch, but I do think, and I mentioned this when we talked about how this team would fare with Tarasi out. I genuinely believe that Scarlett Diggins-Smith has to be immensely more aggressive as an offensive player on this team for them to be able to be successful because she's a big shot taker, big shot maker. She's somebody who can definitely help them close. She's a big time second option that can definitely fill in as a first option on, on any given night. I do agree with you that I don't think there should be any reason to truly doubt them in terms of really being able to compete within a playoff setting. But Again, the only thing that does worry me again is once we get to that top five or six, more so the more so top five, because I think that when you play, if you're talking about maybe playing an inexperienced team like the Dallas Wings, for example, I think if that were a circumstance, then maybe because of the veteran presence that they have and the the ability to, you know, understand how to slow down the game, that against Dallas, for example, they might have a pretty interesting way of faring against one another but against those top five I'm not saying I'm not saying they don't have a chance but I'm saying that if if it's against them top five they're surely six (laughs) at worst case scenario and in our power rankings we had them at seven with the Dallas Wings being the sixth best team which I think is the perfect way to kind of trans transition into Dallas um Ryan, I think it goes without saying that this is a team I am very high on have been very high on for the entirety of the season uh, 9-12 and 12 record, 5th in the Western Conference, ninth overall in the standings on the outside looking in. Uh, Arika Gumbawale has been a really solid player for this Dallas Wings team. Obviously won the All-Star MVP. Didn't go to the Dallas Wing uh, that I predicted would win the MVP in that game, but it went to a Dallas Wing nonetheless, and I did end up taking uh, the WNBA All-Star team over the U.S. team in that did end up working out in my favor as well, be- a lot because of Agumu Wale. This is a feisty Dallas Wings team led by uh, Arike and uh, Satu Sabali, who, of course, I'm extremely high on at the three po- uh, at the three position for them. And I think they really have a chance to make the playoffs. I really, really think they have a chance to make the playoffs. Marina Mabry has been playing really well for them as well. Um I think this team could be really dangerous in a playoff setting because they are feisty. 
They play really aggressive on the defensive end. They will shoot the lights out and really score with you. They are one of the best. I think they are literally the best offensive rebounding team in the WNBA, which also stands out as well. Man, I think that this team, the biggest thing that's hurting them, Ryan, is they struggle to close games, man. That's that is it is killing them. It is killing them. I went in and did a little bit of research to that through their box scores. Ryan, this was the craziest thing I noticed trend-wise throughout their first half of the season. They had eight games where they lost by seven points or less. They had 10 games where they lost by 10 points or less. Ryan, they only had 12 losses. So you mean to tell me that in eight of their 12 losses, they lost by seven points or less? This is a team that has played Seattle a couple times, played Connecticut. They've played against some of these top-end teams. And the fact that they are able to hang in these games Ryan, you know, the, you know, the one game I always lean back on is that game against the Aces where Satu Sabali um, and Aja Wilson went blow for blow. I genuinely believe that the Dallas Wings can make the playoffs this season with the way that they're playing right now. So let's start out with the good. There is a lot of good with this Dallas team. They're third in points per game as a team. They're also third in rebounds. Arike Gumbuale, one of the best scorers in the WNBA, in the WNBA, she's averaging 18.9 points a game, 3.3 assists, and three rebounds. She's going to be a superstar one day. Satu Sabale, Alicia Gray being back, I think that's huge for them. Also, Marina Mabry will most likely win most improved player, and deservedly so considering that this Dallas team that leads, that leads the WNBA bench scoring is led by Marina Mabry. Here's where it gets tricky. Like you mentioned, the inability to close out games has been an issue since the start of the season. And I want to read out one statistic that I think is interesting. In games decided by single digits, the Dallas Wings are 3-8 and eight this season. And if there is a reason for them not to get into the playoffs, that's the reason. I agree 100%. I think that's, that is the the – the statistics for them in situations where they have been able able or unable to close games is probably the most glaring stat. But it also, Ryan, you have to remember, it also points out how young of a team this is. This is a team that had the two first picks in this past NBA draft, and the past WNBA draft, with Charlie Collier and Awakuyer, who both aren't really playing for this team right now in the early goings as well. So. I think the, I mean, man, don't get me wrong. There's a couple of things that obviously have to be pointed out. Satu Sabali was playing overseas. Alicia Gray was playing overseas in the early goings of the season. Missed about at least two weeks, at least two weeks of the early portions of the WNBA season. That has its own effect, I guess you could say, on the way this team started. But I also think that that ability to close games, I think more than anything, has more of an impact on where this team is in the state. I think this team could have been over above 500 going into the all-star break had they just been able to close out a couple of these games. There's two or three games um, in here that were decided by anywhere between two points and five points. 
that I think they genuinely could have closed had a possession or two went better. I wish this was something that we could like pull up some tape and really close. Like we really like break down how they close some of these games. But nonetheless, I think that this is a team that could easily be above 500 as opposed to three games under 500 if they could have just edged out a couple of these big time closeout games that they were they were clearly in the mix for. I think if anything with the Dallas Wings, if they can start closing out games in the second half of the season, this team could easily be a lock for the playoffs. And even though right now we have them slated at six, this team could easily find themselves in the top four if they're able to defeat some of the top teams to close out the WNBA season. So I think that is going to be very interesting going forward, especially with the talent that they have on this team. Should I say the young talent on this team that's really been stepping up for them. But let's talk about another team now as we enter the top five. The Chicago Skies, where we'll start with this top five. So this is a very interesting Chicago team that through most of the season, Candace Parker has not been there and she has not been healthy. And the Chicago Sky were losing a lot of games. At one point, they were one and seven and we had them at number 11 simply because of the loss of Candace Parker. So Jalen, I'll ask you this. What is something that Chicago needs to do to close out the season that can ensure a top four playoff spot? Man, so, I mean, they just play so well together. I think the biggest thing you've got to touch on has got to be the three-point shooting. They're one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league, 20.4 attempts per game. They're 10th in the WNBA in terms of um, the three-point the three point shooting attempts as well as the fact that they're 30, they're shooting 33.4% as a team, which is eighth in the WNBA. So they're bottom four in three-point shooting percentage, which is so interesting considering the fact that Allie Quigley is on their team and she's arguably one of the better three-point shooters on this team. I, I think that it's always, I mean, you, you know, on low attempts, on not so crazy attempts, but Candace Parker shooting nearly 40% from three, Courtney Vandersloot shooting just nearly, uh, just over 34% from three, Kalia Cooper, who has been really huge for them as well, made the all-star team um, as part of this group as well, 30.8% from three. I think that this is a team that if they can get the three-point um, ball rolling, I think that'll be what really will put them over the top. Because, I mean, Ryan, they got everything else. I mean, they've got five players averaging double figures. Candace Parker with 13.3 points per game, 8.8 rebounds per game, nearly four assists. Courtney Vandersloot doing what she does with 11.5 points per game. And the glaring number that I talked to you about in the early stages of the WNBA season, 9.1 assists per game. That is the thing that puts this team over the top. I understand Candace Parker is an NBA 2K22 athlete, and I well-deserved. But this team, when Courtney Vandersloot is somewhere between seven and nine assists per game, man, this team cannot be messed with with the kind of talent they got. Don't don't even forget about Diamond the Shields on this team as well. Like this team, this team likes to get out and run. They play really well together. This is a team that coming off the All Star um, All Star break, I genuinely believe that they will put a lot of these teams in the top five on notice. I'm really calling, I, I, I know I have the aces in the storm mentally 
paid for the finals, but there's a part of me that I think by by the 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 six I think going into the playoffs, I could end up I could see myself picking this team. I could see myself picking this team to make the make the WNBA finals. I genuinely believe it because they have everything. They have the pieces. They are as deep through their top five or six, uh, five, six or seven, as most of these teams at the top five. And from a talent standpoint, they can hang out with just about any of these groups. So I think I think we could really be seeing this team. We have them at five. That, in my book, almost counts them as dark horse contenders for the WNBA title because I think that from a from a certain standpoint, five could be too low. We could be we could be too low on them. I have them at four, but I think that could still be too low by the time we get to six I will say it's very interesting that you chose three point shooting as their weakness, considering that they have one of the best three-point shooters in the league and Allie Quigley, who, like I mentioned earlier, she's one of the best three-point shooters in the WNBA, but as a team, they are struggling shooting the ball from three. But you look at the positives of this, you look at the positives on this team. Kalia Copper had a great start to the season. Diamond DeShields is a great player, definitely helping out Candace Parker on the defensive side. Like we mentioned with Candace Parker, I think that she was the difference maker for this team in terms of defense earlier in the season, when she was out, this team struggled defensively. Now that she's back, this team has become one of the best defensive teams in the WNBA. Courtney Vandersloot, I think you make a great point with her. Every time she averages anywhere between seven and nine assists, this team wins games. And Courtney Vandersloot being one of the best facilitators, not only in the league today, but also in WNBA history, I think is a huge testament to how great of a passer that she has become. I think what you said about Chicago makes sense because of the fact that this team has the pieces to win the championship, but are they better than Minnesota? Are they better than Seattle? Are they better than Las Vegas? Are they better than Connecticut? I think those are questions that will be answered later on in the season and in the playoffs when this team plays those four teams. Ryan, my last word on Chicago is I think, and um, I got I miss I miss said her name earlier. Kalia Copper, along with Diamond DeShields, I think we really need to keep an eye on them in this second half of the season. Candace Parker is not worried about the being the leading scorer on this team. She's just not. She's not. And I think that the defensive presence, the athleticism that these two and Copper and DeShields show as players that love to play in the open court, players that love playing strong in passing lanes, getting deflections, playing in transition. These are two players that are going to speed this team up. And when you have a facilitator like Vandersloot, I think that Diamond DeShields and Kalia Copper are going to be huge in the second half push because I think they're two players that when they are on their A game, I think push this team to another level. Let's move to Minnesota, Ryan, and I'm going to make I don't know if this is a bold declaration or not, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and start off by saying this. I believe that Minnesota on paper is the second deepest team in the WNBA. I don't necessarily know if I have the stats to back that up. I don't even know if from a bench production standpoint, if they rank high enough to classify as that. But Ryan, let me just kind of like, let me just kind of read out what they've got going on with them, right? 
you get Nafisa Collier back, somebody who had missed some time, right? Sylvia Fowles um, is a player who has been playing relatively well for them so far this season, averaging nearly a double-double with 15.9 points per game and 9.8 rebounds. Got Kayla McBride in the backcourt as well. You mix that with Laser Clarendon, who they picked up in that trade with New York, I believe it was, and made an instant impact from day one when she showed up. You throw in Ariel Powers as well, Crystal Dangerfield, and then you throw in Demiris Dantes. They're seven deep. They're legit seven deep, and from a talent standpoint, front court wise, I think the only two teams that can mess with them are probably Las Vegas and Connecticut from a front court standpoint. I, I mean, I think that I think that goes without saying. I think the 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 combination of Collier and Fowles, really interesting front court wise when you start talking about that versus Aja Wilson and Liz Cambridge. And then you look at the Connecticut Sun and their circumstances when you talk about um, the fact that they're a team that is that lives through their front court. You know what I mean? So I think that this team is arguably the second deepest team in the WNBA. And although they had a tough start to the season, right? Remember, we were kind of scared with them. They were missing players. They started out 0-4 on the season. But, man, since then, they have been a really solid team. And going into the All-Star break, they went in on a seven-game winning streak. That is one solid way to bounce back from a tough start to the season. But how do you feel about them? Because I I, I might be a little higher on them than, than most people are. Um, I might even be as bullish on them as I am the Dallas Wings from a depth standpoint. But where do you stand on it? You talk about the depth of this team. I don't know if you said it already, but we have still yet to see Renaya Davis, who can right. add to that front court. Mm-hmm. But add another name in there in Natasha Mack, who signed a seven-day contract back on July 6th with the Minnesota Lynx. If you even thought that this Minnesota front court wasn't already loaded with depth, they're certainly loaded with depth now. But Jalen, I want to read out a statistic that I think is also very interesting. Since picking up Leisha Clarendon off waivers, the Minnesota Lynx are 12-3 and with Leisha Clarendon on the floor. Think about that, Jalen. That's, that's another interesting t- statistic because this was a signing that I said when it was made, this could turn around the team. You did. That's true. He, yeah, I mean, you called it from, from the minute the signing was pushed through. You said that that could be the addition that they needed in order to flip things around. It certainly has at this point. I, I think that there's no, no other way that this team could have gotten better, especially with a struggling guard department, to sign Leisha Correndon, who was the best player available at that time. So I think getting her re-signed throughout the rest of the season is huge. I think having the fourth best offense in the league is huge. I think averaging 21.1 assists a game, I think you've you've harped on that the entire episode, Jalen. Assists are meaningful. And averaging 21.1 assists per game, I think it's a testament to how much this team has improved 
in terms of moving the ball. But then you talk about the fact that they're seven deep. A lot of front court talent. The guard depth is is improving this season. I think if there's a dark horse contender, it's the Minnesota Lynx. I mean, I think you might have a point, man. I mean, you throw out Davis and Matt, too. And, I mean, we talked about this team being seven deep. You throw those two in and they get some legitimate playing time. They could be nine deep with that kind of run. Natasha Mack is only going to be coming and be asked to do what she specialized in at Oklahoma State, which is coming in block shots. Ryan, what did we say that entire time coming off the WNBA draft? The girl averaged four blocks per game. That's going to translate. Like, that's going to translate at the next level. Defense is about effort, not not where you stand from a professional ranking standpoint. Defense is about effort. 4.1 blocks is not something you just fall out of bed into. It's not any, not, not, not really any players out here walking around doing that. And then when you talk about Renaya Davis, I think from a perimeter defensive standpoint, as somebody who's going to be able to play the three for them, I think, I mean, she instantly adds, you know, a strong defensive presence for them that I think could be really huge um, when we start talking about some of those other teams in the top, in the top three, top four, um, and even the top five across the board, um, because a lot of those teams, if not all those teams, have relatively strong uh, perimeter play. Um, my only concern, kind of similar to New York, man. One of the worst turn, uh, one of the worst teams in terms of turnovers. Second to last um, in turnovers per game, with 15 turnovers per game. Um, I, I mean, it's you know, you can't. You, every team's got to fall somewhere in this pecking order when it talk when we talk about turning the ball over, right? But I think as a team that's going to be uh, that's that's in our top five right now. That's probably the biggest flaw that they have in comparison to some of these other teams that I think is just what what hurts them the most. And that's why that's the difference to me. Uh, If you look at our power rankings, I had Minnesota at five. You had Minnesota at four. I believe that those turnovers were really the big swaying stat for me in terms of having to decide on whether or not they were truly a top five team. I think if they can cut back the turnovers while still being this strong offensive team and maybe improve the defense with getting a player like Renaya Davis into the lineup, as well as Natasha Mack, you're getting two defensive specialists into the rotation and it helps with them expanding upon their bench. I mean, now we're talking about something that's really dangerous. So right now with not seeing Mack or, or, or Davis on the floor, it's hard to make a call on them being a top four team right now, but top five ain't bad. I think if they can cut those turnovers down, again, kind of like what I said for Chicago, I think Minnesota is right there in the mix where I think everybody is assuming just with the way that Las Vegas and Seattle have started the season that we could see the rubber match everybody's anticipating, but I could really see one of these teams in Chicago, Minnesota, or Connecticut playing spoiler for one of those teams if not both of those teams and we have a completely different WNBA finals um by the end of the season because I think this top five is no slouch and I think over the next two or three times that we do these power rankings I think our numbers are gonna I think our numbers are gonna shift here and there in that top five I think we're gonna be really conflicted by the 6.0 on whether or not Vegas and Seattle really are the top two teams in the WNBA. I think these other teams can really put them on notice. 
And you're talking about teams with front court depth. And I think this is a good transition to talking about the Connecticut Sun, who mm-hmm. Jalen and I both agreed on as being the third team in our top 12 power rankings. So, Jalen, I want to start with you because offensively, this team has not been as strong as they were to start the season. And this is most likely due to the absence of John Paul Jones for that for that small period of time that she was gone to play in Eurobasket. So what is your feeling on the Connecticut Sun? And do you still feel like that this team is a, is a title contender? I definitely feel like they're a title contender. They're one of the few teams that I was talking about earlier when I was talking about teams in the top three that have a bona fide three players as their trifecta offensively and defensively. John Cole Jones, Dewana Bonner, Brianna Jones, all all-star selections, all deservedly so, all in the front court. <laughs> I think that's like the big thing that stands out, right? The perimeter play has been lacking. Natisha Heidemann has not played um, at as high of a level as we would have expected. I think that has a little bit to do with the fact that uh, Brianne Jan- January came back from injury and Natisha Heidemann has been coming off the bench a lot. I thought that would actually maximize her role because she would just be able to come off the bench and go kill. I thought the whole expectation for her was coming off as a six woman that could put up points in a hurry, was a relatively strong three-point shooter. Instead, we haven't really seen a lot of that. Jasmine Thomas is another one where I haven't really seen the kind of offensive output that I would like. And unfortunately, it's putting them in a situation where it's kind of their front quarter bust, which is fine. Uh, so you have three all-stars in the front court. You can't really slouch at that. But I do think that that's one of those things that's really difficult moving forward when you talk about the fact that their front court play requires so much is required to put so much energy out there on the floor every single night to keep their team in the games. Now, I think the, one of the things that definitely stands out to me, and I think this is where the ar- argument between John Quill Jones and Tina Charles comes into play, is that, you know, this team did take a bit of a step back when Jones, you know, mo- was engaging in international play for a little while. Um, I think she was gone for about a week, week and a half. And um, the team struggled, um, I wouldn't say immensely, but the team did struggle in her absence. Um, you are missing 21 and 11. Um, you're also missing nearly 44% from the three-point line, 54% from the floor overall. So, I mean, that's a significant hit to your front court and a significant hit to your offensive output on a nightly basis. Look, man, this team does not need a lot of help. Um, they're, you know, a top two rebounding team in the league. They're one of the best scoring defenses. I think they're literally the best scoring defense in the WNBA right now. Um, man, I think if they can just get a little bit more action from their, from their backcourt play, I mean, I think they, I mean, they're set, bro. I mean, like I said, I don't want to beat the dead horse of the fact that they're is a really good chance that one of these top five or six teams could play spoiler to the aces and the storm. But I think Connecticut, because of how strong their front court play is, especially if you talk about the Aces, right? They play uh, very strong through their front court. They also sent three All Stars um, to All Star Weekend, all in the front court as well. I think Connecticut versus Vegas, that is one of those matchups that I think can be really, really intriguing, considering how how the lineups match up. So I think if anything, out of all these teams. Um, three through six, three through seven, Connecticut might actually 
line up on paper better than anyone to face the Aces and or the the Seattle Storm. And I think when you talk about the talent of John Quill Jones, you mentioned someone that gives you 21 and 11. Something that Connecticut also missed when she was gone was her shooting and her defense. She's a strong defender, and she's a great shooter from the field and from three. She's shooting 54% from the field and 43.7% from three. So I think when you have a strong player on both sides of the floor and you lose someone as strong as John Paul Jones, that definitely is going to have a significant impact on your team. And I think when you talk about the improvement of players like Brianna Jones, who's averaging 15 and, and close to seven rebounds a game, and Dewana Bonner, who is averaging 15 and seven a game, you talk about how great the front court of this team is, which makes you think about the the lack of production from the backcourt, essentially, because, of course, we mentioned a player like Natisha Heideman, who was a strong player to begin the season, found herself on the bench in favor of starting brand January. It almost was to her detriment this season because she's not producing as much coming off the bench. So I think that getting that backcourt production will will have to be one of the, the top priorities going into the second half of the season especially when you're playing teams who have great backcourt production like Seattle and Las Vegas. Yeah, the bright side is that they're getting as much production from the front court as they are, so it buys them the kind of time that they need to work with to get some of the kinks fixed, uh, worked out um, before, you know, we get into playoff action. And, I mean, they're getting nearly three blocks per game from their front court combined. So, I mean, that's another thing from a, from a rim protection standpoint that is huge in terms of this being one of the better defenses in the WNBA. So I really, I feel really strong, um, strongly about these, uh, th- this three through five group that we have. I, I really, really am um, encouraging a, a, a lot of movement come our next power rankings. I, I'm encouraging it on your front, but I'm also encouraging it to myself to really take a deep dive at these teams over the next week or two before we do our next power ranking because I think on paper, it is so easy to line these teams up, especially, you know, we've had a, we've had about a month to kind of just look at them for who they are as opposed to seeing them on the floor recently. We've seen them on Team USA and across the Olympics front, but as units together, we haven't seen them in a month. So we're basically just going off of what we've seen on paper so far this season, as well as some of the some of the preconceived notions we've made over the last couple of power rankings. I think with two weeks of seeing these teams back on the floor, I think taking into account what we've said today along with that, I really, really believe that we're going to see some serious shakeup throughout the entire top, throughout the entire 12 team power rankings that we put together. Um, with that being the case, we're on the back nine of uh, this power rankings, Ryan, and we have the two top teams in the Western Conference. I'm going to start with the Seattle Storm, who we both had at number two. This team is. Um, Legit, you know, come. I mean, coming off a championship and legit in a circumstance where they have not really lost a beat. Six, 16 and five record, first in the West, first overall in the standings. Um, you lose Alicia Clark 
and you lose Natasha Howard in the offseason and it's like it didn't happen. You know what I mean? I, I, I agree with what you said earlier when we were talking about New York, that losing Natasha Howard has hurt their defense a little bit. I think that's something important to touch on. I think one of the other things that was interesting is that they're now 10th in offensive rebounding. I think that should go to tell you a lot about what Natasha Howard brought to the table as just an internal presence. Um, but I mean, nonetheless, you got, you know, the WNBA's version of KD, you know what I mean? So with that being the case, when you've got that on your team, mixed with the fact that Sue Bird is still a solid table setter, Jewel Lloyd is having a career year across the board. I mean, I mean, we have Seattle at two, and it might just have to go with it might just have to do with the fact that Las Vegas is it looks like they're on a revenge tour right now. But with Seattle not losing a beat, it's kind of hard to doubt them very much at the same time. Like as much faith as I have in some of these other teams in the top five, it's kind of hard to doubt Seattle with the fact that they haven't lost a beat despite losing some of their depth, taking a hit defensively. And having one more year on, you know, Sue Bird's treadmill of a long career. I have to say that there is a chance that we may end up getting a rematch from last year's WNBA finals. But now I think it's even more interesting. Just looking at Seattle, just looking at Seattle without Natasha Howard and even without Alicia Clark. I mean, this team early on in the season defensively was struggling. But they ended up improving on the defensive side throughout the season as the season was going. But I think that if you look at their last three losses, Jalen, they've given up an average of 89.3 points a game. So I think that's where it really hurts not having a perimeter defender, a solid perimeter defender like Alicia Clark and a solid defensive anchor like Natasha Howard. And I think when you talk about when I when I mentioned earlier in the season, how long could this team go if they win games and score 90 points? I feel like at some point it was going to have to come to a halt, considering that they needed some sort of defensive continuity on their side, because even though they rank fourth in the league in terms of defensive rating. They don't have somebody in the middle that can contend with somebody like Liz Cambridge in the paint. So I think that's going to be their biggest issue going forward. I think offensively, there's no questions about what they provide on the offensive side, considering Brianna Stewart, second in the league in points, fifth in the league in rebounds. Jewel Lloyd's having a career year. Sue Bird is still proving that she's a top player in the WNBA. But what it's going to come down to is that lack of an interior presence and I think that is what turns the tide for Vegas over a team like Seattle. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. I think the biggest thing that's hurting them over anything is you've turned Brianna Stewart into their shot blocker, leads the team with 1.6 blocks per game, 1.1 steals. She is their defensive anchor right now. And granted, she's still giving you 20 and 10, basically, on the offensive end on 45% shooting from the field, 36% from three-point line. So she's a do-it-all player that I think you could argue, especially with Seattle being 
where they are in the standings should be somewhere in everybody's top five in terms of the MVP race. I think that the MVP race is a crazy one and you could go 10 deep and not be wrong. But I think that she has to be somewhere within your top five or top six with the fact that she is holding this team down. But Ryan, like you mentioned beforehand, the lack of an inside presence um I mean, that's the one that's tough. The other thing is that after the top three, no other player is averaging at least seven points per game. I mean, Sue Bird just has barely 11 points per game. Jewel Lloyd is averaging almost 18. Like I mentioned before, and Stewart averaging just under 21. But the next highest scorer after their top three is KD Lou Samuelson with 6.9 points per game. I mean, basically, that's to say that you lose significant offensive production if any one of those top three are off the floor. That makes rotations a lot more difficult to define. Um, That goes to show you that they have a significant lack of depth. I think this is one of those things where when we've really we're going to keep tabs on this, but I think that the Seattle Storm could end up being the team that moves down this list. Uh, um, I'm scared to say that because I'm sure they'll probably prove me wrong with the kind of talent they have um, in Stewart. But out of these top five teams that we've talked about, they're the team that has probably the worst depth of the group. Um, And I think that that's really tough when you talk about moving forward because I think depth when you talk about who has the best player in the series I think the gap between who Seattle's best player is Brianna Stewart across the board and the rest of these teams in the top five. I think the gap between Brianna Stewart and whoever is the next best player in the series for the other team is minimal, if not non-existent. I, I, at least within this season, I genuinely feel like from a MVP to MVP caliber st- uh, stat uh, season-wise, across the board, whether it's the Aces with Aja Wilson or Liz Cambage, whether it's the uh, Connecticut Sun and their their front court with Jonquil Jones or Dewana Bonner, the Lynx with Nafisa Collier, the Sky with Candace Parker, I think from a talent to talent, talent standpoint, they're pretty much even Steven at that number one, number two spot. And then once you go down the list, you could argue that some of these other teams might have the next two or three players. That makes it really hard for me to believe that Seattle is going to be able to repeat as champions. But again, I'm not going to sleep on them. I have them too for a reason. The championship pedigree speaks for itself. And on that note, let's transition to our last team here in our power rankings and A unanimous choice at number one with the Las Vegas Aces taking that top spot. Jalen, how do you feel about the Las Vegas Aces? And do you believe that this team has any noticeable issues at all? Ryan, you were saying this for the back half of last season when we were covering the playoffs. You said when Liz Cambridge and Chelsea Gray come back, this team is taking over the league. They're one game out of being. The t- being in the top spot in the Western Conference right now. They're second overall in the standings. Aja Wilson has played solid. It looks like this revenge tour has everything that we could have wanted them to have. 
on the on their way to what looks like is going to be a really interesting second half push for the playoffs. I mean, bro, I mean they're solid across the board, man. Perfect balance of offensive and uh, defensive outputs. I mean, they're first in offensive and defensive rankings. Um, I mean, man, the only thing that I could say that might be hurting them is that they're not really a high-volume three-point shooting team. They're only averaging just under 14 three-point attempts per game. But similar to talking about the Connecticut Sun, who have a lot of their, their you know, production coming from the front court, same exact thing with the Vegas with the Las Vegas Aces. Aja Wilson, 19.4 points per game, nine rebounds. Liz Cambridge, 14.6 points per game, seven rebounds. De'Erica Hamby off the bench, arguably sixth woman of the year by far, 11.7 points per game, 7.1 rebounds per game. I mean, their inability or lack thereof three-point shooting is probably the only thing you can really knock them for. I mean, because outside of that, I mean, they're getting good play from Kelsey Plum, uh, legit backcourt play across the board. Their front court is dominant. I mean, just Cambridge and Wilson alone are averaging three blocks per game. Ryan, didn't I say the front court across the board for Connecticut is averaging three blocks per game? I mean, t- dude, I mean, this team has everything. It's it's ridiculous how much they've improved. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned last season, this team fully healthy mm-hmm. can run it back and win the championship. Called it. I mean, right now, I mean, right now it's looking like, I mean, they they just look like the strongest team. I mean, you know, I I prefaced all of my comments earlier by saying I think that those teams between three and five could play spoiler, but I don't think it's gonna be Vegas who's not gonna punch their ticket. <laughs> I I think that it might be Seattle who's more in jeopardy of missing that chance at making it back to the WNBA finals than the Las Vegas Aces because. The Aces have just about everything. Outside of the three-point shooting, man, I mean, they are doing literally everything. I just feel like this team right now is unstoppable. Liz Cambridge is playing at MVP level. Asha Wilson's playing at MVP level. I mentioned earlier in the season that there's a chance that a Las Vegas player ends up winning the MVP, Mm -hmm. and I feel like it could be either Asha Wilson or Liz Cambridge. Kelsey Plum credit to her for coming back from that Achilles injury, tearing it up in the three-on-three basketball, mm-hmm. um, in three-on-three basketball in the Olympics, ended up winning gold. So I think that was huge. And then also just her being back, I think it's it's it adds another scoring element to a loaded offensive team. And then when you sign Chelsea Gray, the second leading scorer on that Sparks team last year, also has a team high 6.1 assists per game, which is one of the reasons why they are fourth in assists per game in the WNBA. This team offensively has so much firepower that I'm not sure if any other team can contend. And I will say one more thing to close out this episode. I think if, if Las Vegas does not win the championship this year, I think the season was a bust. Ooh. 
I can't disagree with you, man. That's the tough part about it. I really can't disagree. They have all, they have literally the perfect formula for a team that should be able to make a WNBA title run. I completely, I completely agree with you, man. I completely agree. I, I couldn't, I couldn't view this season as anything less than that. I mean, they've got all the pieces. Man, Ryan, this has been a really solid episode. Really glad to be able to get back to the WNBA contest. Shout out to all our ladies for uh, for bringing back some gold, like like you mentioned beforehand, between the three-on-three tournament and, of course, Team USA winning the uh, overall women's basketball tournament over there in the Olympics as well. Um, really happy to welcome you guys back from Tokyo after a really, really long but well-deserved all-star, uh, all-star break. Man, the second half of this season, Ryan, is going to be a movie. It's going to be really fun to cover the back half of this season, and especially come playoff time in October, man. That's going to be when things really heat up, and we are going to have crazy amounts of content covering that. Ryan, any final words uh, before we get up out of here, man? Let's just transition to our question of the day for our fans. Based off what I said to close out my take, do you believe if the Las Vegas Aces do not win the championship this year that their season is considered a bust? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure when you subscribe to us on Apple, you rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you guys next episode. Peace.